Psychologists believe that all humans are motivated to achieve their fullest potential in every part of their lives. But we all face hurdles and challenges along the way. Wherever you need support to break down barriers, build self-belief, and find life's happiness, The Anchor Course can help. You are listening to TheAnchorCourse.com's podcast. So you're the founder of the course. So I understand, you know, you've got all this background knowledge and, you know, you've kind of gathered things about, uh, like, along your way. Um, but how did you come up with the idea of doing this course? Um, I think it was really, I, I was been very, very interested in, in psychology from, from an early age. And the reason for that was I, I did have quite a, a difficult childhood in a way. Um, I don't really have too many happy memories from my childhood. I know that sounds a bit sob story-ish, but um, for me, all I really remember from an early age is my mum and dad arguing. Yeah. And and then when I was 12 years old, um, in a way, it, it was a good thing, but at the time it felt like the worst day of my life. Um, I came home from school one day and my dad was at home for some reason, and he, he shouldn't have been because yeah. he normally came home about half six, and we'd got back about half four. And I remember it was a, a summer's day. It was really, really hot. And walked in through the front door. And my dad was crying on the sofa. Now, I've ne- I'd never seen my dad cry. Mm. So I knew something big was going on. Yeah. And my mum was beside herself. She was sort of screaming and wailing. And, and my grandparents were there as well. And I, you know, I just walked into this 12 year old getting home from school yeah. and I'm thinking, well, what is happening? So yeah, my, my dad sort of beckoned me towards him and, and, and I, I sat on his lap, um, even though I was 12, I, for some reason he wanted me to sit on his lap. <laughs> and, I, and I was just very aware that he was sweating profusely, he was upset and he was like, oh, I'm so sorry, son, I'm so sorry. And I had no idea what was going on. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, that, that was the day that, um, that my dad left home and I didn't see him then for another couple of months because he went off to live with with a colleague from where he worked, right. and uh, and then and then it sort of started to filter out that um, that he had met someone else who, who's now my stepmother, okay. um, and my dad and stepmother have been married for twenty five years as as of a few weeks ago. Right. So and they're really really happy, and you know on the day. And for a few years after you kind of view it as the worst day of your life yeah. but at the same time I said to my dad and stepmom the other day at their at their 25th wedding anniversary that they've taught me so much about being happy in a relationship and how important it is to be happy in a relationship yeah. um, and also how you know what what my dad did on that day um, back in back in the early 90s when I was 12 um, was he took a huge risk mm. you know he, he walked out on his family, essentially, to find a better life yeah. um, with somebody that he could get on easier with, and, and it would just be a, a happier life. And, and that would, in a way, make it easier for me and my sister Nick as well, because we wouldn't have to grow up around having so many more arguments. Yeah. So I guess, you know, trying to understand how adults work from an early age was something I had a huge interest in. Um, but the one thing that I just craved in my life was was some sort of discipline and order you know imagine what my household was like before that and after that with um with the aftermath of him going it it was it was very very emotional and very difficult to 
kind of see clearly is it's a trauma you know it's an emotional trauma but soon after that and and, you know fortunately um i started to do karate and i found you know I, i trained pretty heavily i was training four or five times a week and I found that started to help. It was giving me some discipline. It was giving me an outlet yeah. um, where something was just the same, not the same every week, but I knew that I could rely on my sensei, people around me, and it was just a place that I could go and distract myself. Yeah. And it made me feel, you know, obviously being around that environment, it made me quite low on self-confidence as mm-hmm. well. And the karate started to give me some confidence. Um at 13 years old, then I joined the Air Cadets. My dad was a civilian instructor in the Air Cadets. So I was then doing four or five sessions a week karate, two sessions a week at the Air Cadets. And again, you've kind of got that military ethos mm. of discipline and order. And I did really well at it. You know, I, I graded several times in karate. I was rapidly promoted through the, through the Air Cadet ranks. Um, ironically, the thing that I started teaching at 14 was drill. So I was the guy with a loud voice in, in front of the <laughs> squadron shouting the commands. And, um, and we did really well. Yeah. You know, we, we won. Um, if you've got a group of um, air cadet squadrons together, they call it a wing. Okay. Um, so you might have, say, 50 squadrons in a wing. Uh, and we often went off to wing championships uh, and we'd win or we'd right. be on podiums. And, and, and I was leading that. And uh, it's probably why my throat's uh, a bit ruined <laughs> now, to be honest. But yeah, I mean, it, it just started to give me a lot of order. And I didn't really do so well at school as what I should have because, I don't know, I just I just felt school for me, it, it wasn't a happy place because of everything that was going on. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't, wasn't a happy place. And I, I didn't revise, therefore, for my GCSEs when I was 16. I was predicted straight A's and B's for my GCSEs, and that's not what I got. Um, I got C's and D's because I couldn't. I just couldn't bring myself and motivate myself to revise yeah. and, and do the work. Um, but I did. I did do well enough that I was able to go on to college. And again, my interest in in psychology. I studied psychology, sociology, um, physics. So it's probably clear to say that I had quite an interest in <laughs> in people uh, and how minds work yeah. and um, and it was when I was studying psychology that I came across Maslow's hierarchy of needs and um, and it, this was a real interesting factor to me because um, I was really interested in what what motivated human beings right. so a Maslow's hierarchy of needs is, is kind of a model that, that talks about that so the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So can you summarize it so that we can understand what those needs are? Yeah, so imagine a triangle with five building blocks. It's made up of five building blocks. Now, at the top of that triangle is the process that they call self-actualization. So self-actualization is where you as an individual realize your full potential i.e you're living your potential okay um but obviously there's a ladder to climb to get up to that point now where it starts is um if we just run through the five levels so you've got your physiological needs you've got your safety and security needs you've got your love and belonging needs 
your self-esteem, and then, as I said, your self-actualization at the top. Okay. So your physiological needs is your basics. So it's the ability to um, eat, drink, have somewhere to live, um, and, and just function as a normal human being. So, for example, a homeless person isn't even ticking their physiological needs. They haven't got food, they haven't got shelter. You know, every day is survival. But for those of us that, uh, you know, in a slightly different um, living environment, they're ticking their physiological needs. Your safety and security needs is kind of your, your safety of yourself, of your family, um, your personal security, what we've been talking about quite a lot here. And how, how safe you feel within your job for example. It's all about you just feeling comfortable within your environments, wherever you are. Right. The next stage is that uh, Maslow says we all need to be loved. Mm. Um, I think that's pretty obvious. You know, We all like to be loved by our families, by our friends, by our partners. And we need that sense of belonging as well. You know, We need to know that we actually matter within the unit that we're talking about, whether yeah. it be our family, whether it be our friends. And th these things are very, very important to us. Because if we feel ostracized, then well, it's almost impossible to function, isn't it? You, you, if we feel like we're on the outside of a, of a group that we want to be within, it's, it's difficult to think about anything else, to be honest. Um, Self-esteem, again, is about you making sure that you believe in yourself and are being kind to yourself. Um, this is something that certainly over the years that I find people with low self-esteem generally aren't very kind to themselves. You know, they, they don't like to admit their positive traits. They like to focus more on their, what people tell them are their negative traits. Um, you know, I, I'm very fortunate. I don't listen to what anybody says. If anyone says that something negative about me, then it, it just goes in one ear and out the other. Yeah. Unless it's somebody that's very close to me, then I'll, I'll listen. But my... I don't have a high degree of, of vulnerability to people sort of outside my loved ones. Literally, you know, imagine doing 13, 14 years on the door and all the names you get called. Yeah. You develop quite a thick skin. Yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't go in very often. And then at the top, as I've mentioned, you've got your self-actualization. Um, so the reason why the hierarchy needs is quite important to the anchor course, and it, it's kind of the foundation for the anchor course, is because there's something that I realized along the way that I wanted to bring in as a, as a direct link from the world of psychology to the world of developing self-belief. And what I noticed when I looked at the hierarchy of needs was this area in safety and security of people understanding their own personal security is quite lacking. Um, so my background's in martial arts, then I went into door work, then I went to bodyguarding. So that area of my life has been quite well fulfilled. But for 99.9% .9 of people, if someone walks up to them in the street and says, give me all your money, they're just going to crumble immediately because they've got zero idea what to do at that point. There's an awful lot of bravado, certainly within, within men, where they'll go, oh, come on, then let's have it. And they'll be like, hang on a minute, but I don't know what to do. Um, one of the most common things we used to see on the door is you, you've got your classic 
mouthy person who's who's posturing, making himself look as big as possible, but then also looking behind him at his mates to please someone pull me away. I don't want to get involved in this. Um, you've got that classic technique where someone thinks they should present themselves as as Superman, but actually th- they they need to leave and, and get out yeah. there before it gets embarrassing. Um, but what I also noticed was the way people get attacked in modern life. The, the attacks that bother them more are the subtle attacks. It's the chipping it's away. The chipping yeah. away. It's the little jibes from someone in your family. It, it's the comments that about maybe the way you look or something you've done from your friend, from your so-called friends, I should say. I'm just making inverted commas um, sign there, which doesn't work very well on a podcast. Um, it's being in the workplace, and you've got somebody who clearly has a very strong agenda. Yeah. Um, and they chip away to make sure that you don't get anywhere near them. Um, and they bring your confidence down because it makes them feel better about themselves. Mm-hmm. It's massaging their own ego. These are all the things that when we're at school, you know, I don't remember ever doing a class in personal security that would help me in the workplace where someone started bullying me 15 years later. Yeah. But bullying is so commonplace. Um, Literally, in every job I think I've ever done, I've, I've seen bullying taking place. Um, people turn around and go, oh, I know, Tim, that's not bullying. I'm like, well, does that person feel upset? Well, yeah, they do, but, you know, they need to get a grip. Well, if they feel upset, it's bullying. You know, it doesn't, doesn't matter because the, the bully should be aware that what their actions or their words are doing is creating upset. So if that person is upset, you can't just turn around and say, oh, that person's too sensitive. Well, they may be sensitive, but that doesn't mean that you take advantage of it. Yeah. So a, a lot a lot of what, a, what the Anchor course is about is about focusing on this subject that we didn't get taught at school and trying to help people deal with these real lifestyle problems. You know, most of us will go through life and we'll never be attacked by someone with a knife. But I would imagine that most of us will have an incident of low-level bullying or someone trying to upset us or someone trying to cause us harm within what we thought was our loved ones at some point. Um, And it can hold us back. Um, It can really, really hold us back in life because it starts to make us think, are we worthy of of that person's uh, love? You know, do do we belong in this group? And it starts to make us question things. Um, One thing that I never do is I never question where I fit in, in my life and in my family's life or to my partner. If I start to question it, I need to remove myself from it. Um, You know, because one thing that I am incapable of feeling is is worthless. I I cannot feel worthless and I'm very fortunate in in that regard. Um, But I'm completely aware that it's very easy for a lot of people to feel worthless, even if it's just for a few seconds, it doesn't matter. Fortunately, you know, my uh, my whole life has got me to that point where you can't beat me down. Um, you can you can cause me harm and, y- you know, you can cause me problems, but you won't beat me down. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is really what I want to share because what I believe is that I can teach people the same. Yeah. Basically. You've spoken about all the different types of people in your life and how they could affect us. Can you elaborate on why you feel that's such an important aspect of the anchor course? Yeah, it's, you know, when I just talked through the hierarchy of needs there, I mean, it'd be easier if I could kind of 
show you the hierarchy on a picture because then you could see and you could look at it and you go, yeah, actually, I'm actually ticking most of those boxes. Um, there's around about 25 to 30 different attributes that within the hierarchy of needs, which we go through and go, yeah, I'm pretty happy with that. I'm quite happy with that. Yeah. I'm quite happy with that. I did that in my head as well. Okay, I was yeah. like going so through you, and like, oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and you think, yeah, I'm pretty happy. But the one that most people think, yeah, I don't really know too much about personal security. And mm. I do sometimes suffer with attacks at work or my partner says this or my friend says that. And I don't really like it. It does affect me. It brings my confidence down. Yeah. Um, so this is this is why this this is why because if your confidence is being lessened or you're being taken further away from your confidence wall what's actually happening is your vulnerability is being increased so when your vulnerability is being increased that will prevent you and this is coming from psychologists not from tim peace the ex-doorman that will prevent you from fulfilling your full potential because you will doubt yourself vulnerability makes you doubt yourself plain and simple so if if i can say offer some of the the life learnings that i've had over my life um and sort of reinstate your backbone um give you a set of balls if you like (laughs) uh, metaphorically speaking and say well actually no i don't need to take this i don't need to listen to this nonsense that's being said to me i'm not going to be hurt i'm not going to be upset you know i'm not going to go home and burst into tears because it's some sort of cathartic response because i I don't want to live this way um and, and and this is what the anchor course is about it's about standing up and owning your life not letting other people own it um i mean don't get me wrong i've been people try to attack me all the time literally but i mean proper attacks i mean knives i mean bottles i mean shoes um and you go home and you think wow that was uh that was a busy old night but the thing that's in me is that i don't take it personally mm. um you know if you've ever watched uh, patrick swayze in roadhouse the number one rule is it's not personal yeah uh you know and <laughs> i watched that from an early age and and certainly the way patrick swayze was in that film sort of shaped that was what I wanted to do, you know. When I was in my teens, I wanted to be Patrick Swayze from Roadhouse. I wanted to be the cooler in a rough nightclub, uh, you know. And it kind of, in a way, I guess, came <laughs> true. Uh, I just didn't have the same cool hairdo. But yeah, I mean, what this is about is it's about the anchor course is about trying to find people who are perhaps a bit stuck in a rut. They're struggling to move forward, and the reason why they're struggling to move forward is because they're doubting that they have the ability to move forward. So what I want to do is help reinstate that thought process that people think, actually, do you know what? I can do this. I can be strong. I can have my own identity. I can have confidence. What that person said about me is not true. They're only saying it to try and hurt me or to further themselves. And and that's that's what it's about, really. You know, I, I just I've been very fortunate that I've learned a lot about predatory people in my life. You know, security really is about dealing with with predators um, and neutralizing their predatory behaviors that that's what we do in security when it comes to the crunch obviously you are listening to the anchorcourse.com so did you always want to get into security work or was it just something that you kind of fell into or because of your lifestyle you just felt was a good fit yeah so I did want to get into security, but not nightclubs. I wanted to get into national security. Okay. Uh, so I wanted to join the Navy. That that was the trajectory that I was on at school. Right. I wanted to go in the Navy and be a helicopter pilot. Okay. Um, 
but due to my GCSEs, then it wasn't possible for me to for me to progress forward on that right. because obviously the Navy only takes the best of the best. And um, al- although that's the way I was going, it, it just didn't happen that way. Yeah. Um, so I guess when I was doing my martial arts, I came across a guy called Jeff Thompson. And Jeff Thompson wrote a couple of books back in the day in the mid-90s called Watch My Back and Bouncer. And I think he's he's gone on to write all sorts of books. Right. And because of his association to martial arts and his background as a doorman, I was just kind of intrigued about this this door work thing. Right. Um, you know, I went to private school. My parents... Um, you know, weren't rich, but they weren't they weren't poor either. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess you wouldn't think I'd be the sort of person that would end up on a nightclub door, but there was just something in me that thought I just want to give this a go. I think this is kind of where I'll find even more confidence to be able to deal with things. So I kind of got involved in security, and um, and my first security job was when I was seventeen. And I worked at Coventry Cinemas, uh, Coventry Showcase Cinemas. And I was just, you know, a normal cinema security guard. Um, but it was a really, really good job. And um, and I enjoyed it because, I, you know, I felt like I was doing what I should be doing with the martial arts. And, I, you know, I felt like a bit of a big man. Um, and and that, that was just good. You know, I, I was just, I was quite fortunate, though, that I'd only been there a few months. And... Um, I literally got lifted off the floor by my head by somebody, which which kind of brought me back in line quite quickly. Mm. Um, so, happen. yeah, I, if I tell you, I, I think what had happened was I'd literally just come in from the, the car park and it was the time when Mortal Kombat had been released. I don't know if you remember right. that film. So it was 1995. Yeah. So 25 years ago. Wow. But um, I was going into the toilet and one of the screens was just clearing from Mortal Kombat showing and I'd walked in through the front foyer. I'd started to go down one of the concourses to the toilet. And um, and a guy, huge guy, walking the other way, just just said, he pointed at me and he went, oh yeah, I bet he's just a fat bastard, really. Well. Um, and the reason the reason for that was I had a, it was cold outside, I had a bomber jacket on, I had a fleece, I had a jumper. Um, and uh, I, was, I was quite heavily padded up because I was working outside a lot of the time. Right. And for some bizarre reason, I thought, oh, I better, better set him straight. You know, that's what I should do. So I, for some, you know, I was immature. I lifted up my top and said, I'm not actually fat, mate, and carried on walking. Why I said it, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But it seemed like the right thing to do at the time on a, on a you know, getting justice type thing. Yeah. The next thing I know, I was being thrust very quickly uh, towards the wall face first. And I didn't know what was going on. You know, adrenaline took over. And I suddenly hit this wall with my face, and um, and yeah, and then I was I was completely helpless. I was spun around, and the next thing I know, I was off the floor. So this guy had picked me up by my neck with one hand, which is pretty impressive, really. I think I was probably I don't know 80, 85 kilos at the time. This guy was huge, yeah. and he literally lifted me off the floor by my head, right. and um, and he was in my face, and he was shouting and spitting. And saying, "Oh, do you want to slap?" And he was effing and jeffing, um, and but he didn't do anything else. He just kind of did this sort of tirade of of abuse for yeah. about ten or fifteen seconds. Saw that I was absolutely petrified, 
um, and then walked off laughing with his mates. And I was stood there. I don't think I messed my boxer shorts, but I wasn't far off. Yeah. Um, and I stood there and I suddenly had this wave of disappointment come over myself and self-doubt mm. that I'd literally not been able to do a single thing about this attack. So I'd been doing martial arts for probably six years at that time. And this is the first time I'd ever been involved in a proper attack with a stranger. And he'd not only um, completely owned me, mm. he'd lifted me off the floor by my head. Um, and I was obviously pretty shaken at the time. So I went to try and find my supervisor and I was struggling to breathe. You know, I, was, oh, I can't believe it, I've just been picked up by my head. Yeah. And he, he'd really tried to choke me out whilst I was dangling there. And, um, and I just had, for uh, several weeks, I just had this overwhelming disappointment about how martial arts, um, I kind of felt that martial arts had let me down yeah. because I didn't have an appropriate response. Of course, it's nothing to do with martial arts. It no. was the fact that I was 18 years old and didn't have a clue. I just thought that every attack that would come my way, you know, they'd be two meters away. Um, I'd have plenty of time to think about what technique I was going to use mm. and I'd always be victorious. Of course, yeah. that's how it happens, isn't it? But it doesn't. So this is what happened, and it really, really made me doubt myself. It made me feel like I was starting again. So basically, um, yeah, so I, I was really upset. I found my supervisor. I told him what had happened, and I was thinking about finishing. You know, I thought, this isn't for me. I, I obviously can't do this job. I'm not capable of doing this job. And it was him at the time that said to me, no, 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 you know, this, this is sort of thing happens. You know, you, you just have to move on. You, you've got to look at the good points that come out of this and move on. And then over the years, I've been so grateful to this guy. If I, if I was able to meet him again now, I'd, I'd, I'd want to hug him because what he taught me in those 15 seconds taught me more about real life combat than uh, I think anybody else ever has. You know, a lot of people have gone down the martial arts route and then maybe been faced with something and realized that traditional martial arts or the way it's being taught is completely useless on the street. Um, and, you know, I really, really appreciated the lesson that he taught me on that night because from that point, touch wood as I am doing now, um, I've never been ambushed again. Yeah. I've never kind of believed had absolute belief that I am going to be victorious. You know, I've, I've not ended up in hospital. I've, I've not been badly injured. So, you know, arguably I've done all right for myself. But getting ambushed that early on in my career um, really taught me some, some valuable lessons. Yeah, I feel like there's always a point in someone's life that kind of changes things. And yeah. you kind of assess yourself. You might have had all that training or you know you, you had that confidence as a child and then something takes it away yeah and you think okay what do I have to rely on now you know yeah. what can I do and where can I turn to and you know you had someone that you could have turned to and and you did and that changed things um so you know you were talking about um you know being a doorman and 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 things like that um what was the life like being a doorman yeah, it's, it's pretty good. I mean, uh, the, the way I got into it was um, I, I took a job at House of Fraser in Leamington Spa. And um, whilst I was there, I, I started, I joined the security team eventually after working in the warehouse for a bit. And um, 
and I met this guy in House of Fraser. Obviously, you've got a lot of designer concessions. And there was a chap called Neil who worked on the Crombie concessions, you know, selling um, really nice expensive suits and coats and that sort of thing. And and he said to me one day, he said, oh, have you ever thought about getting into nightclub door work? And I said, no, not really. You know, I'm, I'm happy doing the retail side of things, but, you know, it is something that maybe when I'm a bit older, I'll, I'll look at. And he said, no, no, he said, he said, he said, come over now. He said, I think you'll, I think you'll be all right. You know, we're, we're looking for, for doorman in Northampton. Okay. And I said, uh, I said, all right. I said, I'm not too sure because you know, my confidence had been pretty knocked. But yeah, I'll come over. He said, look, I'll look after you. I'll make sure, I'll make sure you're safe. You know, we'll, we'll make sure that you, you learn how to do the job properly. And that was kind of how it started. So I think I was 19 at the time. And uh, so I was pretty young to be a doorman, but I, I kind of felt like I could do it. So I went over and um, I met this this huge guy. He was must have been about six foot six, about 18 stone of muscle called Morris Young. And, uh, and Morris Young ran the, the security firm. You know, we called them firms back then. And I think there was about 160 of us door staff on, on, on the, in the firm. Right. And he also ran like a fighter's gym as well. At, at, just before I'd met him, I think he was the, um, the UK heavyweight kickboxing champion or something. He was just he was just a man mountain, but a lovely, lovely guy. And um, yeah, so we, we, we met up at this uh, kind of smoky pool bar in, in Northampton. And then I was given a, a blue blazer to wear. And, uh, and my first door job was at the Rat and Parrot Pub, um, which is in Northampton, which is kind of like, like I suppose a bit more of a posh Weatherspoons, if you like. Okay. There must have been about eight or ten of us on the team. I was given a, a bit of a show round, told where to stand, what to do. And suddenly I started to feel my confidence come back again. You know, I'd put this blazer on and I was part of a door team yeah. and I started to feel comfortable again. I could start to do the job. It was quite a quiet venue though, um, but once I'd been working a few weeks there within the team, obviously someone must have said some half-decent things about me. Um, so then Morris said to me, oh, do you fancy working at this nightclub called McGinty's? I think the way he sold it to me, he said, if no one dies, then that's a good night. And I said, right, okay, it's pretty rough then. He said, he said well, it is, but I'm there and, and I'll make sure you're okay. Yeah. So, you know, I believed in Morris and I said, all right, I'll give it a go. I must have been 19, 20 years old. And here's this huge dude saying he's going to look after me. But I'm, I'm still a doorman in my own right. I've still yeah. got to make sure I don't run away from stuff. I've exactly. got to get involved. Um, but, um, but when you walked anywhere with Morris, uh, everybody knew Morris in Northampton. You know, he was, he was a big presence and everybody knew who he was. So you walk into a nightclub with Morris, people move out the way. Yeah. And I suddenly started to learn about presence um, and about influence that, that goes before people. And um, so I walked in there with Morris by my side <laughs> and it was one of those moments where you go, all right, okay, so if I'm with you, I'm safe. Yeah. No one's attacking Morris. Um, and that kind of created an environment in which I could start to learn from him and see how he did things, as, as well as a lot of the other guys as well. You know, we had some violent guys on the firm, and they were involved in some pretty terrible stuff, which I can't <laughs> talk about on here. Um, you know, there, there was stuff even at 19, 20 years old, work that I was being offered, which doesn't get talked about. Yeah. Um, 
and I didn't take it because it was way out of my realms of uh, morals. But, you know, the guys that did the doors in Northampton were the guys that solved a lot of problems, should we say. Mm. Um, but I was only a kid still, you know, and it, it, wasn't, it wasn't what I wanted to get into. But, yeah, I learned a lot from Morris, and, and it was great. You know, I absolutely love working with him. Cool. So it sounds like you've had a lot of violence, you know, working with uh, Morris and, you know, he had that presence about him that kind of spoke before he did, kind yeah. of. Yeah. Um, you know, and obviously being a doorman for so many years, um, was it violent? You know, obviously it was violent, but how did you deal with it? Like, how do you deal with it now even, you know, going back to being attacked um, and feeling like you've had everything taken away and then moving into a more confident realm that is still violent, how do you then, you know, walk away from that or be in normal situations and deal with that? Um, well, I guess, I guess the thing was that um, at the point where that guy ambushed me in the cinema, that I felt quite vulnerable but I didn't want to feel vulnerable. I wanted to feel confident. And because of that, I think I was caught fast enough by the influences in my life to stop me starting to fall backwards, if you like. Um, so when I started working with Morris and the other guys from the firm, suddenly all of that was put behind me. And I started to see that there was a science to door work that, you know, if I say there's a science to door work, most people go, are you serious? It's just about chucking people out of nightclubs, isn't it? It's like, no, it isn't. It's a lot more than that because it's about protecting yourself and everybody else. Um, but what happens is that you, when you have exposure to anything at all, you, you kind of get used to it when you've been exposed to it for a long period of time. Um, if I can give you some sort of, idea what we used to deal with when I moved to Bournemouth because so I moved to Bournemouth soon after and I started working in a quite a rough nightclub there mm. you know if we if we didn't evict a minimum of 10 people every Friday and Saturday night and yeah. we didn't have one big fight then we were a little bit concerned that we were missing something um, so you know you you come to work you might do an eight-hour shift here I used to go there and do an eight-hour shift you'd expect to deal with a certain amount of customers. Yeah. Same as I expect to deal with a certain amount of customers, but the customers I'm dealing with are not the same. These are ones that are trying to glass people or stab people. But the point is that your your job just becomes your norm. And suddenly, violence is a very, very strange thing. You just get used to it. You know, the same as a same as a copper does, the same as a soldier does. You know, the same as a paramedic gets used to seeing legs hanging off and, and dealing with those sorts of things. The same as a midwife gets used to childbirth. You know, you get used to these pretty shocking things. Um, so, but it did start to change me. You know, I noticed that I was becoming a different person because of this immersion in this, in this violent culture. Um, but not change me necessarily for the worse. It was just making me into a pretty strong character um with very few vulnerabilities um I, th I think i actually left door work once when i was about 24 25 because i'd stopped feeling fear okay. and, I, and i knew a lot about fear i'd studied fear as a subject about adrenal release and how i should feel when threatened but i wasn't feeling that anymore and just the fact that i wasn't having normal instincts 
was starting to trouble me personally because right. I was thinking, what is happening to me? Am I, am I going a bit mad? Um, because I, I should be feeling something when someone wants to punch me in the face and I'm not. Mm. Um, but then I kind of, you know, you do a bit of studying and you realise that it, it is quite normal to get used to these things. But um, but funnily enough, it is, it is the first place as well that I experienced workplace bullying myself. Um, so when I worked in this nightclub, Berlin's, for, for some reason, one of the doormen in there took a dislike to me. I don't know why. Um, and started to make up stories about what I had and hadn't done. Right. And, um, and the, the way you the way you make someone, the uh, way you get people not to believe in you as a doorman is you say that they're not there for you when a fight kicks off. Right. You know, it's pretty easy. You know, the, the job of a, of a door supervisor is, is to go to the situation and help with it. So this is this is something that he did. He, he told our head doorman that something had kicked off and that I didn't respond. And subsequently, I was, I was pulled in front of the head doorman and, and the deputy head doorman. And I got a, quite a grilling about not responding to this incident. Mm. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and they said, well, yes, you do, because so-and-so has said that, that he called you and you didn't respond. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what incident. You know, we didn't log things back in them days. Right. Um, I don't know what incident. I don't know when you're talking about. I didn't even know which shift we were talking about. But I went up to him afterwards, the, the guy that made the report, and I said, why Why did you say that to the head doorman? I, I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about. He says, he says, yeah, yeah, you do. I was like, no, I don't. I've got no idea what this is about. And just over the series of a few weeks, it just became apparent that um, that he had a problem with me. Just a, a simple personality clash. But I never did know why. I didn't understand it. I didn't clash with anybody else. But um, but he decided, as a lot of people do in workplaces, that he didn't want me on that team. Um, so it started to get a little bit awkward because, you know, our bullies are, they, they don't like to give up. But, um, but like I said earlier on, you know, I don't have a victim mentality, so I just kind of carried on. It wasn't as happy as it was before all this started, but I carried on anyway. You mentioned earlier that Morris kind of was a person that influenced you and really took you under his wing. Was there anyone else in your career or your life that you would say also did that for you? Yeah, I mean, when I moved away from the Midlands and, uh, and moved down to Dorset, I was at Berlin's, the nightclub I was talking about just a minute ago for about a year or so, I guess. Um, and then I was offered a job at uh, Jumping Jacks, which was a nightclub, more of a party venue, I guess, next to Bournemouth Pier. It's been knocked down now, but um, it was there 20 years ago. Um, and the head doorman there was a guy called Gary. And Gary was somebody that hugely influenced my life and, and kind of became a bit of a mentor, I guess. Um, Gary had been a bodyguard before to a wealthy Arab family. You know, he, he traveled as a bodyguard. Um, he was also a Jeet Kune Do instructor. Okay. So it was actually Gary that got me into Jeet Kune Do. Oh, right. And he seemed to be somebody that saw something in me that he wanted to develop. Right. And just little things, really, like um, I don't know if you remember the first series of, of Big Brother, but um, in, well, the first series. So mm. this in the second series, there was this, this guy called Bubble, and he used to wear like a, like a trilby hat. So that was kind of his signature thing, that he signature accessory. Right. 
But of course, like a lot of people from these reality TV programs, they, they get about six months worth of celebrity post airing of the show. Yeah. And then they disappear into yeah. insignificance. But we had Bubble come to the, the club one night. And, um, and it was the first time anyone in, in the door, work, door world had ever kind of stood up for me and, and, and put me forward. And I guess I was probably 23, 24 by this point. But we knew we'd got Bubble coming and we knew that uh, somebody needed to look after him, you know, go around with him as his bodyguard. And whilst we were having our pre-shift brief, Gary got everyone together and he said, right, I've decided that Tim is going to look after Bubble. And everyone's faces in the team kind of dropped. You know, I was the newest to the team. I think I was the youngest on the team by by some stretch as well. And it ruffled a few feathers straight away. And even I said, oh, are you sure, Gary? You know, is this, is this a good idea? He said, yep. He said, you're going to do it and you're going to do it well. I went, all right, okay. So he didn't tell me too much about what to do or how to do it. He said, just stay close to him. Um, and any problems, you, you, you deal with it and you get the rest of us involved. Uh, and that was my first sort of real experience of, of bodyguarding. I hadn't got a clue what I was doing. But I knew that if anyone tried to come near him, then I was going to deal with it. Yeah. And it was great. It was fantastic. You know, I'd probably been doing door work for about, I don't know, four years by this point. So I'd, I'd dealt with quite a lot. I was feeling quite confident. Yeah. And um, I felt confident that if there was a threat to bubble, then um, it would be dealt with. Yeah. And, it, you know, the night went really well. But again, like I said, it, it did put a few people's noses out of joint. But that's always going to happen, you know, when a lot of people wanted to feel close to Gary because he was a big, a big presence and, um, and, he, and he was the boss, you know. I worked with Gary for probably about two and a half years on that door full time. So we're doing six nights a week. And I also trained with him for probably two years in Jeet Kune Do. And he, he changed a lot about basically what, what Gary brought to me was he synced the martial arts training to the real world. Right. You know, Gary had been a doorman for maybe 15 years already when I met him and a martial artist for maybe 20 years. So he was able to bridge that divide yeah. between what goes on in the class and what goes on on the street with strangers. And I just learned so much from him. And, and I guess if I was going to be like anyone at all in the way I... I manage my door or the way I manage my attitude when I'm on the door or sort of my dormant persona, if you like, then it was him that I was trying to mimic and, and then eventually become myself. And so, yeah, he, he was a big, big influence on my life. Yeah. Um, so you obviously you went from being a kid, you know, going through all the things that were happening in your life and then you got into like martial arts and, you know, training yourself in a way to kind of predict what's going to happen and yep. things like that. And then you've got into dorm work and then you've gone into bodyguarding. So, you know, obviously I understand protecting a door, protecting a venue um, and the people within it. But what was it like switching over to bodyguarding? Um, can you tell us about like how, how that was for you? Yeah, I mean... Gary was the first um, actual bodyguard I, I'd ever met. Right. And back then, and still now to a degree, if you've got your close protection badge, you're kind of seen as the top of the, the security sector. Oh, okay. And that's where I wanted to be. You know, mm. I wanted to keep going up the ladder. So 
I carried on doing door work. I did move to Newquay for a few years. I qualified as a teacher, but then I came back to, to Bournemouth um, and I carried on doing door work for some time. But when I was about 32, you know, I was in a, a relatively secure relationship. I had my dog at the time. I was kind of just going around different pubs and clubs and doing holiday cover because I didn't want to do it full time anymore. Mm. So I just said to the owners of the company, just put me anywhere you like. I'm not bothered where you put me. And, um, and I'll just do the odd Friday and Saturday. So I worked in this place for a few months with, with my friend Katie. There was just me and her working on a door. I, I was 32. It was pretty cold one night. And I, I remember we had these three blokes fighting in the club. You are listening to TheAnchorCourse.com. And I, I, binned, so I, I took them all out. And Katie kind of monitored the door and I just went in, grabbed one, chuck them out. The other one grabbed them out, chuck them yeah. out. And they were all fighting with each other. But the, then a weird thing happened. They then decided they wanted to fight me. Yeah. So then I had three guys that wanted to fight me, which wasn't, sounds a bit arrogant, it wasn't a huge issue because they were all drunk and I wasn't. And, you know, well-seasoned doorman by that point. So, yeah, I, um, I was dealing with three guys on my own and went in, grabbed them, took them out one at a time. So basically, we're out on the street now in front of the nightclub and two of them carried on fighting with each other. I don't think they really knew what they were fighting about. They were too drunk. But, um, but I split them up and told them to go away, as you do in the nicest possible language. But then for whatever reason, and I, I don't know why, they, they all decided to turn on me. So that they went from fighting each other to wanting to fight me. So then I'm dealing with three guys. So it's, it's not as tricky as it sounds when, when you're competent and confident mm. to, to deal with three at once because they kind of move like zombies when they're that drunk but I was just pushing them away and, and keeping them at distance but but one of them wasn't quite as drunk and he obviously fancied himself as trying to get the best of the doorman mm. so in the end that didn't happen and I was lying in the road with him and I was um, gently putting in s him to sleep shall we say <laughs> I was I had what's called a, a, a rear naked strangle on him and I was trying to reduce his consciousness yeah. um, to a point where he was no longer a threat to me. Okay. But because we'd sort of been tussling around a little bit and I'd taken him down to the floor and put this, this strangle on him, but we were lying in the road yeah. and then this car came towards us, not going very quickly, but there was a car coming towards us and I'm lying there and I'm strangling this guy I'm looking at the other two that are still sort of trying to get back up to their feet to have another pop at me. And he, he's kind of gone a little bit sleepy now, this lad. And I'm looking at this car and I'm thinking, there's got to be more to life than this. Yeah. Um, it was just one of those moments of realisation. I was 32 years old. We just look at it and you go, nah, I think I, I, think I might be done with yeah. this. And that, I think that was my second to last night. I think I, I said to the bosses of the door company, I said, I, I think I'm done. You know, I've, this, this isn't for me anymore. My, my partner at the time was getting more and more worried that I was dealing with stuff on my own. Well, yeah. not, I wasn't on my own, but yeah, it, it was just, it was just a, a, a bit of a struggle. The door scene had changed an awful lot, and there are a lot of people that you work with that, you know, we used to call them shirt fillers. They're, they're, and I'm not talking about Katie I was working on with on that night, but there was, a, there was a big increase of people that just filled shirts and mm. filled the contract, but they are absolutely no use to you. You know, if you were working in a nightclub with, with 10 other people on the team, you could probably rely on one or two. Mm. And the others would go the other way or not answer their radios or, oh, sorry, I didn't hear that there was a fight kicking up on the dance floor. 
Ah, right. Okay. No worries. It was one. It was one of those situations. Yeah. So it was getting to that point where it was getting less and less safe, and you know, like I say, I was in a in a relatively stable relationship, and I just didn't want to do it anymore. So the bodyguarding really appealed to me, and I signed up to do my bodyguarding course. I think in 2011, and by a strange twist of events there is a first aid element to your bodyguarding course and, and I was a first aid instructor. So mm. we got to the end of the course and, and the course organiser came and said, look, I'm really, really sorry, guys, but um, the first aid instructors just pulled out. Didn't say why, but just said first aid instructors pulled out. So we, we can't deliver the last three days of your course. And I said, oh, don't worry about that. I'll deliver it. And everyone kind of looked at me in the class and said, what do you mean? I said, I'll deliver it. I'm a first aid instructor. And they went, are you? I said, yeah. I said, Nobody asked me, but I am. Yeah. I've been doing it for years. I, di- I did it with the RNLI. I did it down in Nuki. I'd, I'd been a first aid instructor for, I think, uh, about nine years by that point. I've been a beach lifeguard instructor as well. And I, s- and they said, are you sure? You know, if we can get you a load of bandages and dressings together, can you deliver it for us? And I said, yeah, of course. I, I had my presentation or a presentation on my laptop, and I, I delivered it. Yeah. But not only did that make me. Um, have a lot stronger relationships with the other guys on my course because mm. then suddenly the role shifted. Yeah. But the boss of the company from the training company who also supplied bodyguards was really impressed. So I started to get a lot of work. Yeah. And not only get a lot of work just as an operator, but I started to be given bodyguard roles to look after people, which you didn't normally get straight away. Yeah. I was made team leader of, of several teams very quickly. Um, or I'd be like the team medic if there was a big a big group. And um, yeah, I, I kind of went on quite a rapid trajectory mm. to go forwards. I mean, I think within a year, one of the biggest jobs I did was team leader for a Victoria's Secret fashion show. Oh. I had 30 guys on my team looking after the hotel for the Victoria's Secret models. Wow. But again, and it's been a bit of a theme to my life, it puts a lot of people's noses out of joint when you get the the better jobs, if you like. So you you start to have a few sort of political problems, but like I say, it doesn't really bother me. But I was given a lot of opportunities and involved in looking after a lot of people. I've worked with some very, very big names, not necessarily as their bodyguard, but on the team, Mm. on the security team. You know, often if you see a big celebrity with one bodyguard, there's usually you know, anything up to 10 others around. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of my first big jobs was the Kardashians. There was 12 of us on the team. But if you saw if you saw the, all the girls, the Kardashian sisters together, you might just see one bodyguard in the picture. Yeah. But there was 12 of us moving around with them. So, you know, in my industry, a lot of people will, will claim those big, oh, I've looked after Kim Kardashian. Well, I was in the team that looked after Kim Kardashian, yeah. but I was one of 12. <laughs> And I did it for four days, not for very long. So yeah. I'm more than happy to say what the what the real what the reality yeah. was. Yeah. But I can still say that, you know, we we looked after at the time she was huge mm-hmm. um, celebrity, and we've been involved with all sorts of um, big names, really big names. Yeah. You are listening to theanchorcourse.com. Thanks so much for listening to part two of podcast number one with the Anchor Course. Keep moving closer to confidence by listening to part three now.